Hi, this is Fred Litwin, author of Oliver Stone's Film Flam, and you're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Sky Experience. Proud to call our home talk radio 77 WABC. We like to say it, and others agree. The crown jewel of radio, the iconic 77 talk radio, beaming out of New York City, around the nation, around the world, and I'm sure even in the Dr. Sky realm, way out into the cosmos. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we come back down to earth and we talk about a very important subject which another anniversary, the 60th anniversary, sad as it is, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Joining us today with a brief introduction will be author Fred Litwin. His new book, a very good one, might I add, to talk about what he believes is the real story behind what people might think of conspiracies with the Kennedy assassination and his incredible research, a book entitled The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, Oliver Stone's Film Flam. But first, we give you, the audience, a brief introduction of our guest. Oliver Stone's film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, is Fred Litwin's fourth book. In 2020, he published On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser, which chronicled Garrison's persecution of Clay Shaw. In 2018, he published I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, detailing his journey from believing in a JFK conspiracy at 18 slowly moving to believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone assassin. And in 2015, he released Conservative Confidential about his move from left-wing anti-nuclear activism to conservative party campaigner. Fred, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you uh, speaking with us all the way from your home in Canada. How are you today, sir? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is fascinating. You know, this is a subject that, I don't know, it just goes on and on and on. And that's, I'm one of those people that just loves to listen. And I say listen to people like yourself that bring us the story and all these iterations of what happened back in Dallas, Texas, as we all know. And maybe the young listeners out there have really no clue of the significance of what this meant in world history, the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Talk about your road from the conspiracy side to your research, which brings us to what a pretty solid conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin debunking a lot of these conspiracy theorists. Tell us about your tra- you know, your, your whole period in time and study. Well, you know, I, st- I started in this when I saw the Geraldo Rivera show in March of 1975, and he played the Zapruder film. And like many other Americans, I was horrified when I saw Kennedy's head go back into the left after the fatal headshot. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wanted to know exactly what was going on and why uh, was that not an indication that he was shot from the front? And that led me on a, a decades-long quest. Um, ultimately, uh, it led me in the early 90s to the House Select Committee on Assassination and their volumes of evidence and I got it on CD-ROM, and when I started reading it, I was amazed to see that they had conducted many, many scientific tests, ballistic, fingerprint, forensic, uh, medical, photographic, trajectory analysis. Every single test pointed back to a lone gunman, every single one, 
And I had to say that that convinced me. Interesting. And it's not just a quick overnight, uh, you know, conviction. I mean, this goes on for how many years have you been researching this particular subject? So the audience really knows the depth and breadth of what you're all about since, here and uh, this conclusion since, that you've come since to. Since 1975. Wow. It's interesting. You know, again, I watched just recently, I have in my hand here, sitting in my office here in Arizona, a DVD called Image of an Assassination, a new look at the Zapruder film. And it goes on to talk about, includes never-before-seen versions of President Kennedy's assassination. But you're so right. I watched that Geraldo Rivera interview, and boy, in those days, they never really had good television uh, resolution quality. It looked a little garbled, but I simply got the point in which the nation was shocked seeing the evidence that you know, is, is available in the Zapruder film. But I got to go back in time on this. I mean, this is interesting. I've tried to do as much research as I can. I'm no expert by any means. That's why we go to people like yourself. Talk a little bit about the, the story of Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, I've read so many books, and obviously one that I've always thought was quite interesting was Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History. And I'm sure you're familiar with that book. It literally can be a step stool if you can't reach the uh, top shelf in your kitchen. It's that big and that extensive. But like yourself, I think it was Vincent Bugliosi who also chronicled that what? Lee Harvey Oswald was, in his opinion, like yours, the lone assassin. But let's talk about this man for a minute. Tell me a little bit from your research. What do we know about him that's been so mystifying? I mean, I heard old stories that he was a purported CIA agent. He uh, was in the Marine Corps. He was an expert marksman, blah, blah, blah. Take us down the path of Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, he was a very troubled youth. He had a, an overbearing mother who, uh, uh, when she, in which he developed a lot of resentment, and he stopped. Uh, he lived in various places. They moved around. He was in and out of orphanages and um, skipped a lot of school, got into a lot of trouble um, with the authorities, and... Um, had a streak of violence. He actually pulled a knife on his mother. He pulled a knife on his stepbrother. Um, he was a little. He, he had a fascination with guns. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the age of fifteen, he was living in New York City, and uh, he got a little brochure about the Rosenbergs, the mm-hmm. atomic spies, and right. uh, that that had him go down a road of on left wing activism. He became a communist or a Marxist, I should say. Um, developed, developed an interest in anything having to do with Marxism, and ultimately, uh, after joining the Marine Corps um, in 1959, he defected to the Soviet Union and lived there for two years until he became disillusioned with the Soviet Union, came back to the States, in which time he still hated America, but the new jewel in his eye was Cuba. And he wanted to go to Cuba, and in September 63, he went to Mexico City to try and get to Cuba, but he was denied uh, a visa, and uh, he ended up going to Dallas, a very angry man. Interesting. What is segregation? I don't know what segregation is. Uh, what is bigotry? I don't know what bigotry is. What does uh, hatred mean? I don't know what it is. Uh, what is uh, prejudice? Um, I think it's when somebody's sick. Anybody see my old friend John? Can you tell me where he's gone? 
Street is coming by here. I can see many, many motorcycles coming by now. Police motorcycles. Just had a call on the radio for all units along Industrial to pick up the motorcade. Something has happened here. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man, spread eagle, over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade, trying to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. Dallas, Texas. The Flash apparently official president john f kennedy died at 1 p.m central standard time what always troubled me and i'm sure many listeners of this particular interview today we're doing that of course on talk radio 77 wabc with the dr sky experience and our special guest is author fred litwin extensive research ladies and gentlemen on his conclusion among many other things debunking some of these you know, whole stories that we've heard before about conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination. The book entitled simply The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, Oliver Stone's Film Plan, which we'll get into a discussion of the title and what it means. But here's what's so troubling to me, Fred. If they knew about this guy, why weren't there any level, higher levels of security put up against this guy? Because it's not easy, I guess, at that time to just simply defect to the Soviet Union at the time. I mean, did they just not see him off the radar somehow, or they just didn't follow him? Or who knows? That's where the conspiracy comes from. They knew he was part of some bigger, you know, organization. Well, or, or they, you know, he was a young kid. I mean, he defected at a very, very young age, went mm-hmm. to the Soviet Union. I mean, the people in the embassy in Moscow, um, you know, kept his passport and kept his citizenship alive because they realized this guy will be back. He won't like it here. And in fact, Oswald came back to the embassy with his you know, tail between his legs and came back to America. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they didn't know he was violent. They didn't know he had pulled the gun on his mother. They didn't know he was okay. beating his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, well, all they knew is he had defected and wanted to come back. That's amazing. I mean, because so much is chronicled about him and so many of the big authors that have written books. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of the gentleman that we had on for many, many years talking about this. Jim Mars. I'm sure you're familiar with some of his research. Yep. We had Jim yep. on, not taking sides here. I mean, this is always good. That's why we do these formats. Because I said to you off air, it's a shame today that uh, the art of debate in many cases is seemingly demonized, that we can't really have these seemingly civil discussions where people can come in and say, OK, I like what he said and I think he's right or she's right or she's wrong. You know, it needs to be like an open forum like we have. Well, let's talk more about this. I mean, the time we're allocated today, which is limited, but I'd love to ask you this straight up. I'd like to stay in touch with you. So hopefully an open door can exist that we can maybe do follow up on this and, and continue to discuss this with so much evidence that we can't cram into one simple interview. But again, appreciate your time and hope you're good with that future request. But this is what I want to find out about. I purchased a long time ago. See, I'm a firearm trainer. I spent a lot of time in the law enforcement world, not to be bragging here. I teach regular programs like a lot of people do on, you know, everything from concealed carry to the higher level training. So what am I saying? I went ahead, Fred, and got a copy of the Manica Carcano rifle that supposedly Oswald used in this assassination attempt or the successful assassination that he did, according to your information. I took the rifle. We took and purchased regular old cordite ammo. 
shot it at distances with flower sacks at the same distances that we believe were shot from the Texas School Book Depository. All I came up with when we purchased the same scope at a California gun dealer in which we actually had it drilled and tapped, it looked identical without the sling. And I can just tell you this much, Fred, that rifle was the sloppiest rifle I've ever had in my hand. And the most, how do I say this, inaccurate gun. So tell us, there's a story that you put in the book about this particular rifle, what, mail-ordered uh, and sent in those days, you could order something through the mail. Talk about the rifle. Well, the rifle was a Manlicher Carcano rifle that he ordered uh, mm-hmm. through the mail. It was manufactured in 1940, um, mm-hmm. and he was using it in 1963. I'm not sure when you used it. Um, right. I was in Dallas last week, and I was talking to one of my friends who's a law enforcement officer from Virginia. He mm-hmm. bought the exact same rifle as Oswald, got the exact same ammo lot, and the mm-hmm. exact same scope, and he said it was remarkably accurate. Well, I should also point out that, that the day after the assassination, it was being tested by the FBI. His rifle was being tested, and it was extremely accurate. And by the way, Oswald was a great shot, and the shots were easy. Well, you know, tell us this, and again, you know this, I don't. From the distance of the sixth floor in the Texas School Book Depository, two first or second shots, what would you say would be the distance that he, as a marksman, had to accomplish the first, to hit the, the, the first shot was 55 yards away. The headshot, the last shot was 85 yards away. And Oswald was qualifying as a sharpshooter in the Marines at 300 to 400 yards without a scope. Interesting. So in the, in the simple vernacular, he was, he could, in those days, using iron sights and no telescopic sight. That is amazing. See, I never knew all that. But again, Fred, my rifle must have been one of the bottom of the barrel <laughs> You got well. It, it could have been also. When did you use it? Well, this was back in the late. Uh, let me think. Nineteen nineties. We actually used this. And so don't forget that that's, that's 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 twenty seven years after Oswald used his rifle. Absolutely. And I don't know. Not to get too technical with the people out there who are not familiar with firearms, but you're right. We scrubbed the barrel as best as we could. But maybe because of the time and degradation, you're right. Maybe that rifle was, of course, over time nowhere near as accurate. So now we're hearing, okay, this is great. We're hearing the rifle had great accuracy, but the shooter equally made that bullet impact onto the president of the United States. Isn't it strange, Fred? I mean, this is so bizarre. What happened with this whole concept? Apparently, in some cases, that big Lincoln limousine that they use, they did have in certain uh, motorcades a bulletproof shield. Why then was that not available? I mean, have you done research? On that when he was well, yes. In fact, the, the bullet top was uh, it was available, and in fact, they were going to use it that day because it looked like it was going to rain. But it all cleared up. The rain went away, and uh, you know Kennedy wanted to be out in the open. He I didn't want it. the bu- it's called the bubble top. He didn't want the bubble top to be used. Yeah. And in fact, if you if you look go back to the Kennedy's motorcade in Tampa, November eighteenth, nineteen sixty three, you mm-hmm. can actually see Kennedy standing up in the car during that motorcade. Wow. Wow. An even easier shot for a potential assassin right. right out in the open. We've heard stories about this. And again, all the conspiracy things light up the phone lines all the time. But here's a question and it comes to you with, I'm sure, the research you've done. Apparently, the president always had a bad back and was wearing a back brace. Is that accurate that on the day of the assassination, the back brace, yes. did it impede what was happening or did it actually help? what was happening. I mean, when you get shot, it's not a good thing. 
What's your story on the on the back brace? And did Kennedy apparently have it on the same day he was shot? He definitely had it on. He needed that back brace. He was uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of pain, large part a large part of the time. Um, that back brace may have helped to keep him sort of more erect than usual after the first shot, um, which made him more of a target for the second shot. But I'm not really sure of that. That's interesting. Let's now get into the book itself and, and why this book is written in detail. And I'm going to read and quote. I don't like to do that, but in this case, it's necessary. Oliver Stone made two versions of the same documentary, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, is the two-hour presentation. JFK Destiny Betrayed is a four-part, four-hour presentation. And your book, of course, is relying on JFK Destiny Betrayed to discuss his documentary. So let's jump right into it. Let's get the, the answers from the author, Fred Littman, here. How do you start off with a disagreement from Oliver Stone's, as you describe it, film flam? And your research here is just amazing. And people need to get a copy of this book and why. Not because it, it gives you, you know, short readable chapters. That, that's a plus. You don't have to let it go into so many hundreds of pages before you see pictures or illustrations. But you have what? 46? How do you describe them? Many chapters? Is that basically what we would say? Yeah, like 46, 47 chapters debunking one particular part of his documentary series. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into that. I mean, in the short time we have today, what are some of the most outstanding things that you've researched and say, wait a second, these crazy, you know, conspiracy theories are now disproven by my research. What would be if you wanted to go in the order of, you know, maybe one of the most egregious ones that you now in your book show is quite the opposite? What would it be if we start off? Well, in, in the film, they make the allegation that there was a plot against Kennedy in Chicago on November 2nd and mm-hmm. a plot against Kennedy in Tampa on November 18th. And I researched both of those supposed plots, and there's absolutely no evidence at all uh, for a plot in either city. In mm-hmm. Tampa, there were a couple of minor threats from young guys who had psychological problems. Mm-hmm. And in Chicago, there was a, a possible threat from a, a young uh, ex-Marine um, who had also had psychological problems, but there was absolutely no plot. And it's just mm-hmm. perplexing that they make such a big deal of this in the documentary. Interesting. And you go on and on and on. We don't want to give all the secret sauce in here because we want people to get a copy of the book. But go on with just a few others, because I'll have many, many questions in our short time today, and appreciate well, your response. Well, you know, they, they, they make yes. the claim in the documentary series that J- JFK's brain was, was substituted um, by, by another brain. And the problem here for the documentary series is, is that JFK, the photographs of JFK's brain shows that the left side of his brain was intact, which is, which is consistent with a, with a shot from the back hitting the right side of his head. Um, and so that is not good for Oliver Stone. He wants to prove he was shot from the front, and therefore they make the allegation that the autopsy photographer took a photo of another brain. Well, if you wow. examine his testimony, it's just exactly, it's not what he said. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're misleading people by quoting um, uh, parts of his testimony, which um, was sort of very indecisive because he had memory problems. It's, it's, it's just an egregious error to, to, to think that Kennedy's brain was switched out. That's amazing. You know, again, I was mentioning to you off air, and an audience should know this, they'll hear another interview not attached to this one today on the Dr. Sky Experience, in which we actually had a sit-down, a pretty, pretty interesting encounter with Clint Hill, former Secret Service agent. And in my role as being an interviewer, 
I asked him some questions in a room in which there was permission to record. You know, this was not the official interview, but I asked him to get some other information. We could piece it together. And I simply asked him to describe the story of what happened that day. And to much to my surprise, he was very reticent about even giving me any real details. And I kept pursuing it, but being respectful. You know, I didn't want to be rude, but I certainly wanted to be persistent. And I was kind of shocked. I mean, can you describe to this audience what did happen that day with Secret former Secret Service agent Clint Hill, as we all see what in some of the frames of the Zapruder film? Well, Clint Hill was a Secret Service agent who was right behind the limousine, and after the shots rang out, he uh, he had to run up to the limousine, and Jackie Kennedy was sort of going out of the limousine trying to retrieve possibly a piece of Kennedy's skull, and yeah. so Clint Hill ran and jumped on top of the back of the limousine to sort of help get Mrs. Kennedy back in the back seat. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very, very uh, visual thing to watch uh, Clint Hill running and jumping up on the limousine after the last yes. shot. Interesting. Describe this. I've been to Dealey Plaza. You describe it yourself, just having been in, in Dallas in this area. I look at it as kind of a very surreal little area. Now, if many people haven't been there, your description's worth a million you know, words because we're not seeing a picture in this radio interview, of course. But to me, it seemed like a very small little area, as you're describing when Oswald shot Kennedy from a distance, as you described before. But isn't it kind of surreal? It's almost like a made-for-movie or television kind of a location, if you want to put it that way. Sad to say that. I mean, that's yeah, what the I first thought. time I went to Daily Plaza, I got out of the taxi, and I looked around, and I said, am I in Legoland? Exactly. It was so small. Yeah, uh, it was tiny, and uh, you know, you walk to the railway tracks behind the book depository, and it takes just just a few seconds to get there. It's so small; yeah. there's no way you'd have multiple assassins shooting there without being noticed. Well, let's go back to Oliver Stone's first film, and I think many people who haven't seen it—well, we certainly don't want to be a movie spoiler—but your book gives refutation of so many of the things that he purports in both of you know this and the documentaries. You know, I remember, and we had an interview with a woman, not a woman, we had an interview, I should say, correct myself, of a gentleman down in New Orleans who had some newspaper called a Picayune something, and he wrote a book about a woman called Rose Sheremy, and he described her as being the person that you see, a alleged prostitute that's dumped out of a car in Oliver Stone's first movie there, the JFK movie. And he goes on in his book to describe the fact that she was theoretically told by people that picked her up as they were driving, I guess, toward Dallas, that there was going to be, without giving specific information, some sort of an assassination or shooting of a big, a big deal would happen. Is any of that nonsense in your mind from your research, or, or am I on to something that still, to this day, needs more uh, research? It's complete nonsense. Rose Sheremy was a drug addict who was declared legally insane in 1961 in Louisiana. She was admitted mm-hmm. to a mental hospital, was administered electric shock. Um, I don't think um, um, the cons- conspirators would sort of have her in the car and just tell her everything and then just throw her out so she could tell right. the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the fact is, there's absolutely no evidence she actually said anything about the assassination before it happened. Well, that's the crazy story, Fred, that I got out of the book. Apparently, she's sitting in some sort of a nursing home or a hospital. And I know this yep. is wasting valuable airtime because you're telling me it's nonsense. But just the story, just so people can hear what the allegation was in the conspiracy side, is that she's sitting in this room and she's looking at television. 
and they knew that she had mental issues and she's saying, oh, no, my God, when he turns the corner, they're going to shoot him. And apparently she was told to, you know, they grabbed her or whatever. So that's what I was told. But again, this is good to have fresh blood here. And, well, ideas. And, that, and what um, you say is actually true in a memo. The problem was, of course, as we know, the motorcade was it was not televised. So she couldn't have been watching it and say it's going to happen. Ah, no, there you, you go. Know, it wasn't televised. Let's talk about a few other things here. And I want people to go ahead and get a copy of the book, obviously. How do they do that? Because I see your email listed here, which I'll ask you, you know, for permission to go ahead and give that out. But is there a direct yep. website that people can go to get a copy of this book? Which yeah, I people can go to my website, www.onthetrailofdelusion.com. All one word, www.onthetrailofdelusion.com. Links mm-hmm. to my books and over 800 articles for free with lots of primary documents on the case. Well, this is fascinating, Fred. Bulletin from KLIF reporters stationed at the Dallas Police Station. Police Captain Pat Ganaway has just told KLIF reporters that a suspect held in the assassination of President Kennedy was an employee in the building where a rifle was found, an employee in the Sexton building. Ganaway said the suspect had visited Russia and was married to a Russian. This was not immediately confirmed. I got to go with this way. We talk about Jack Ruby, nightclub, strip club owner, whatever the story is accurately, you'll describe it. What relationship was there really, in your opinion, from all the conspiracy stuff of Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald? And then, of course, I'm going to ask the penultimate question more about the assassination in the bottom of what the Texas, uh, the basement of the Texas Police Department there in Dallas. Talk about that relationship between Ruby and Oswald. Well, there was absolutely no relationship between Oswald and Ruby, and why would there? I mean, Oswald didn't drink. Ruby had a nightclub uh, where you drank and uh, watched uh, women strip. Wow. Interesting. Total nonsense, then. Another one of the things that we can debunk. Yeah, they, they, they were in completely different worlds. So then it goes to beg the question, why then would Jack Ruby want to shoot? I watched it as a little boy, and I still can't get it out of my head. I was in New York at the time, as many people of this age group, and we're watching a black-and-white television what, on the 24th of November, just days after the assassination, and I see Tom Pettit of NBC News, now I know who he was, talking about Oswald's going to be coming out of this vehicle, and I don't know, they were going to do more what, booking, interrogation. And then you see him, Jack Ruby, just run up there and bang, bang, bang. What, what, what was the motivation in your mind for this? Simple. What was it? Well, the mo- there, there wasn't really much of a motivation. I think he was very distraught that weekend because there was a full-page ad in the Dallas mm-hmm. Morning News on the, morning, on the Friday morning criticizing Kennedy. It was signed by Bernard Weissman, which is a Jewish name. Uh, Ruby mm-hmm. saw that. He was very disturbed by that. Uh, and after the assassination, he thought that perhaps there was a connection between that ad the assassination, and he started to worry that perhaps Jews would be blamed for the assassination. And that was the start of sort of him going downhill mentally. He was extremely distraught. Uh, He was taking diet pills at the time as well. And on Sunday morning, he had to go to the Western Union office to wire some money to one of his strippers. And as he exited, he saw some commotion uh, a block away at the police uh, station. He walked in there, walked down the ramp, and just that was when Oswald was being taken out, and he in an impulsive act, he shot Oswald. Amazing. I mean, it's all so surreal. I mean, here's an assassination that's got so much conspiracy behind it. Your, of course, research indicates and tells us and purports with, with great information, I might add, that Lee Harvey Oswald's yes. a singular, you know, assassin. 
let's get rid of then all the other stories of three hobos on the train tracks or a bullet and a rifle fired from the front and other world conspiracies. So, well, what are we talking about in summation here? An angry man who hated Kennedy, who had the ability and the motivation to shoot him. And that's what you purport without me, you know, bending the, uh, the interview here. That's pretty much the summation, right? Uh, yeah, I would also say that Oswald did it for political reasons. He was enamored with Fidel Castro, and he was very angry at the sabotage that the Americans were doing in Cuba. And I think he wanted to strike a blow for the Cuban Revolution. Interesting. No, fascinating stuff here. Okay, so give us your take. If you had a couple of minutes, which we certainly have here, give us your summation of the whole concept of this book as it refutes so much of Oliver Stone and what we call the title here, Oliver Stone's film plan. What would we be summarizing here today in this interview on the Dr. Sky Experience? Well, I've gone out and I've taken basically all the, all the major allegations that Oliver Stone has made in his documentary series, from the medical evidence to the physical evidence, to the political side, to conspiracy, you name it. I have taken it and I have provided the primary documents that prove he's wrong. And I think, mm-hmm. don't take my word for it. Read my book. I have all the links to the primary documents. You could read them for yourself. Well, Fred, there's another thing that I'll bring up here, and I know you'll jump for joy because you're the one who says this, but you do it with documentation. Here it is. The role of imperfect memory in witness testimony brings what up, in my opinion, and I'm sure you'll respond. It brings up so much in the world of conspiracies. So it goes to imperfect memory, right? I mean, this is something that how could people overlook the concept that not everybody's recollection of an accident or a shooting is really the way it happened. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, p- people don't realize that memory is very imperfect, but, the, but what's even more imperfect than the, per people's memories is 30-year-old memories. And you have <laughs> Oliver Stone relying upon uh, testimony given 30-plus years after the fact to prove something. And you could just see when you read some of the testimony of people, they're having issues. And there's lots of things they don't remember and, uh, you know, that's why we need to rely upon the physical evidence rather than the mm-hmm. eyewitness evidence. Now, that's interesting. I mean, your book purports so much in the 400 plus pages. It's definitely something for those out there that want to get, in your opinion, and I really kind of go more on your side of the equation here to how you refute with facts in an open, open forum. And finally, you've said what? You've had open debates on this subject with, with many people in front of large groups, I'm sure. So you're no stranger to the art of debate, and that's a good thing when it comes to giving us facts and not fiction. Yep, it's 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 again. I mean, it's easy to debate a lot of this a lot of this stuff because uh, again, I, I I don't I rely on the primary documents and and uh, some of and in fact, it's so it's it's it amazes me just how easy it is to debunk some of this stuff. It's so easy and. Uh, it shows that sometimes conspiracy theorists are extremely lazy uh, when they don't look for coherent answers to some of their problems. And we wrap it up with a quote that you have in the book from John F. Kennedy, and I quote, too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought, end quote. How apropos, as you put in the book, the book, once again, ladies and gentlemen, the demagogue of Dealey Plaza, Oliver Stone's film flam, Fred Litwin. Wherever books are good, well, good books are sold, and this is a good one. I want to thank you. Stay on the line as we go to the hard break at the bottom of the hour. That concludes, for now, this edition 
Although Dr. Sky experience exclusively on Talk Radio 77 WABC, as we like to call it, and others agree, the crown jewel of radio, the iconic 77 Talk Radio, beaming us out of New York City, around the nation, around the world, and I'm sure in many of the other subjects we talk about from astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and American exceptionalism, and guests like ours today, Fred Litwin. We continue and move on, wishing you the best of the holidays. Thank you, Fred, for joining us on the Dr. Sky Experience. Hello, I am former Special Agent Clint Hill, United States Secret Service, co-author of Five Days in November, My Personal Experiences with the Kennedys on November 22nd, 1963. You are listening to A Call to Rights with Steve Cates. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, as we mark that sad date in history, November the 22nd, 1963, the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, a very special guest here and near and dear to our heart, ladies and gentlemen, Clint Hill is a retired special agent, the United States Secret Service. He's the author of many books, the New York Times bestselling authors of Mrs. Kennedy and Me share the stories behind the five infamous tragic days surrounding JFK's assassination, published in remembrance of the beloved president on the 50th anniversary of his death. Clint Hill will forever be remembered as the lone Secret Service agent, that is, who jumped onto the car after President Kennedy was shot, clinging to its sides as it sped toward the hospital. Even now, decades after JFK's presidency, the public continues to be fascinated with the Kennedys, America's royal family. To mark the 50th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination, Hill recounts the indelible memories of those five days leading up to and after that tragic day in November 1963. As Jackie's guard experienced in those days, firsthand Hill promotes and provides a moment-to-moment narration evoking the feelings and emotions behind the images, clearing up the persistent conspiracy misconceptions along the way. Clint Hill, welcome and thank you so much, sir, for your service to the United States. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Well, thank you likewise, sir. Let's start off with the first book that you have, and I find this book totally fascinating, Mrs. Kennedy and Me, also as your co-author, Lisa McCubbin. Talk to us, sir, about your special relationship with Jacqueline Kennedy, of course. Well, it didn't start out that way. When I first approached her and she realized that I was going to be there with her for the period of time that they were in the White House, she really didn't want anyone there. She didn't want somebody looking over her shoulder 24 hours a day. I really didn't want to be there. I wanted to be where the president was because I knew that's where all, he, where all the action had been in the past. But we finally agreed that we're going to have to get along, and we gradually got to really know each other and trust each other, and it became a very, very good relationship. A long relationship indeed, as we described before, America's royal family, the Kennedys. Talk about that magic that the Kennedys had that it doesn't seem, in my opinion, and in the estimation, Mr. Hill, of many others, that we've ever come anywhere close to what the Kennedys were like. Well, one of the things was that why they were so highly thought of at the time was you have to remember that uh, in 1960, when President Kennedy was elected, he replaced a 70-year-old gentleman named Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was rather a grandfatherly figure. And here comes President Kennedy, 43 years old, with a 31-year-old wife, a little girl, not quite three, and his wife is pregnant, about to give birth. Yes. So most people in the United States could relate to them. And they really... Uh, like to be able to do what they were doing because they 
they had a lifestyle that was very, very nice. They had a summer home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, a winter home at Palm Beach, Florida. They had a, a place out in the countryside in Virginia where they could go and relax. So it was one of those situations where anybody would have loved to have had that type of lifestyle. And people oh, loved it. A wonderful experience for sure. Our special guest, ladies and gentlemen, in this very important segment of A Call to Rights with me, Steve Cates, is retired special agent, United States Secret Service, Clint Hill, talking not only about the first book, Mrs. Kennedy and Me, but also, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the latest book. And you can learn so much more about living history, ladies and gentlemen, a very tragic day, of course, in America's history. And if you're old enough like myself, I was five years old at the time, and I distinctly remember this indeed as many folks out there are taught in early childhood about this very tragic day in American history. The President of the United States is dead. He died at 1 o'clock this afternoon in Parkland Hospital 45 minutes ago. Governor Connolly, with bullet wounds clearly visible, I don't know how many, it's unconfirmed yet, was it below the shoulder blade and apparently not directly in the chest as had first been feared. But he is in the operating room now, according to our information. His new book, as he's co-author with Lisa McCubbin, is Five Days in November. Let's transition to the book, Five Days in November. Describe to us, Mr. Hill, you were telling me off-air about some interesting stories. The book goes into things that the public probably doesn't know about way before the tragic event. Well, there really hasn't been anything said about the first day that we left for Texas from the White House, November 21st. And we went to three cities that day, San Antonio, Houston, and Fort Worth. And the reception was extremely exuberant, large, and friendly. And uh, the people who make the arrangements for the trip, the political people specifically, were very pleased with the way everything had gone. Most people don't quite understand that. Also on that day, it was the last time that President Kennedy had a chance to see his young son, John. Because uh, when we left uh, the White House, the president wanted John to ride in the helicopter with us out to Air Force One at yes. Andrews Air Force Base. And so he was very elated because he loved riding on the helicopter. And when we got to Andrews, he then realized he wasn't going along on Air Force One to Texas. He had to go back to the White House. And he started to cry. Sure. And the president, Mrs. Kennedy, tried to uh, calm him down and make him happy. They said to him, John, we'll be back this next Monday is your birthday, third birthday, and we'll be back to celebrate that with you. But that didn't really help matters much. And then the president turned to the agent that was with young John and said, Mr. Foster, will you look after John until I get back? Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with those of us who heard it because we know what happened. He never did come back. How sad. So it was very sad to hear that. Absolutely. I want to move fast through time here, and I know that there's a lot of things in history, and I certainly don't want to be one with the time that we have today to talk about minutia, but talk about the specifics, about things that people need to know about five days in November. From what we've read, and maybe some of the things you can help clarify, the presidential limousine that day, a decision was made not to ride with the bubble top on. It was, of course, to be ridden with an open car without the top. But I wanted to understand something, sir. I understand on the back of that vehicle, a very impressive, large, and very heavy limousine, as you know, you were there. There were areas on the back, like yourself, where an agent could apparently be on the back of the vehicle. Is it true, I heard and read, that President Kennedy decided somewhere in Tampa, Florida, that he really didn't want agents on there because he didn't want to give the impression that he was not approachable by the people? That's exactly what happened. In Tampa, Florida, the previous Monday, November 18th, there was a long motorcade, 26 miles. And the advance agent had stationed two agents on the back of the car for the entire motorcade because he didn't want them running on the street for 26 miles. 
Well, about halfway through, the crowd dropped off. The president turned around, noticed him there, tapped the supervisor agent on the shoulder and said, Floyd, will you get those Ivy League charlatans off the back of the car, please? <laughs> and so eventually they got off the back of the car. When we finished the motorcade that day, he came to the supervisor and to the advance agent and said, look, I can't afford to have it appear that there's anything between myself and the people. And when the agents are up in the back of the car like that, hovering over me, it gives that appearance. And so we're now into a campaign mode. And so unless it's an absolute necessity, don't have people up in the back of the car. Sure. So nothing was ever written about that. But the word passed throughout the service that from now on, stay off the back of the car unless there's a real problem. Sure. The president did not, again, want to give the impression that he was not approachable. He wanted to be a man of the people. As President Kennedy was, as you know, sir. Our special guest is former special agent in the United States Secret Service, Clint Hill, talking about a brand new book, ladies and gentlemen, Five Days in November, a rare glimpse into history from this gentleman's perspective. He is a very special guest here in Arizona. Mr. Hill, you've probably been asked this question so many times as that fateful day continues to unravel. We find the presidential motorcade making a very sharp turn in downtown Dallas. Describe to us the moments up to that tragic and most uh, maybe most memorable photograph, a sad one indeed, of you, of course, trying to do everything you can to keep Mrs. Kennedy back in the limousine as the fatal shot hits the president and is, of course, the, the fatal shot. Well, as we came through the downtown section of Dallas, we were on Main Street. But in order to get to our destination, the trademark, where the president was going to make a speech at noon, we had to turn right on Houston and then left on Elm. That put us right in front of the Texas School Book Depository. Now, the turn from Houston to Elm was very, very sharp, so the motorcade slowed down considerably. And as we were just straightening out, going down Elm, I was on the left-hand side of the car, immediately behind the presidential vehicle. Yes. I was scanning to the left and straight ahead to the triple underpass we were going to go through. And all of a sudden, over my right shoulder, I heard this explosive noise. I didn't recognize it immediately as a shot, But when I heard it, I started to look toward the noise, and in so doing, I looked over the back of the president's car. I saw his reaction. He grabbed at his throat, and he moved to his left. I knew something was wrong. It wasn't a normal reaction, and so I jumped from my position and ran toward the presidential vehicle in an attempt to get up on top of it to form a barrier or shield behind President Mrs. Kennedy so no further damage could be done. Absolutely. And this is what Secret Service agents are taught to do. I mean, this is instinctive to you. This is what we call cover and evacuate. We were Absolutely. hoping to cover and give the driver a chance to get out of the area. I think it would be worthwhile for you to review again your own thoughts as to the irony of the removal of the plexiglass plate over the president's car. It had been at first uh, advisable, they thought, uh, the Secret Service authorities thought, just to use a Dallas automobile for the motorcade. But then when bad weather threatened, as far back as two days ago, the long-range forecast said the possibility of rain in Dallas on Friday, they determined to fly the president's official White House limousine by Air Force transport plane to Dallas so that the large plexiglass dome would be there. This protects the president from the elements and also is designed to protect him from assassin's bullets or any other objects that might be hurled in his direction. We'll leave out a lot of the morbid details, but you described to me not actually hearing that sound of the gunfire, but what? You you actually noticed a sound that something sounded, and please put this into best words, I don't want to make these words up, sounded like a melon exploding when that particular shot hit the president, when, the fatal when shot. The, when the fatal shot, the third shot hits the president, I was almost at the back of the car. 
and that particular shot had a different sound and I'm assuming it was because it hit the skull and so it was kind of a hollow sound and uh, when it hit the president it hit him in the right rear of the head and exited the upper right rear quadrant the reason it did that is that when he fell to his left his head went down to his left mm -hmm. and so his head was somewhat down at the time the shot hit him and it exploded out the upper right rear quadrant of the, of the skull out came blood, brain matter, and bone fragments, and it was just all over the place. Very horrible. Mr. Hill, we only have less than a minute here, and again, I want to thank you for your time, but very quickly, to address any of the naysayers that believe that uh, Oswald was not the only assassin or the single assassin, what do you say for history? Well, there's never been any proof to uh, indicate to me there was anything but three shots fired that day in Lee Plaza, all by the same individual, Lee Harvey Oswald. Mr. Hill, I want to thank you for your service to the United States of America, to the Secret Service. We honor that. And again, ladies and gentlemen, the book we're talking about here, Five Days in November, retired Special Agent, the United States Secret Service, Clint Hill, is joining us today. From all of us to all of you, we thank you for listening. into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.